The following audio is from Lifehouse Church. We hope you are blessed by this message and encourage you to connect with us on social media or at lifehousechurch.org. Blow up the acrony. Your persistence surprises even me. Surely you don't think you can escape from this island. It depends on how reasonable we're all willing to be. All I want is the girl. If we refuse, then your Fuhrer has no prize. Okay, send that. Hold it. Yes, blew it up! All your life has been spent in pursuit of archaeological relics. Inside the ark are treasures beyond your wildest aspirations. You want to see it open as well as I. Indiana, we are simply passing through history. This, this is history. Do as you will. This is history. In the Indiana Jones movies, uh, four going on five movies, um, you have Indy. Uh, who's a professor and kind of passed down in his blood is this, you know, archaeological desire to search for ancient artifacts. And along the way, you know, he chases to find the Ark of the Covenant, you know, uh, now, right now, the Dial of Destiny. He found the Holy Grail, right? All these, you know, kind of epic movies where in each one of them, he has some type of like a guidebook, right? Like he's got his dad's journal. He's got Ravenwood's journals, right? And they have notes in them with these little clues that helps him find eventually what he's looking for. And then in the process, he's fighting off the Nazis who want to use those relics to conquer the world and destroy the world. And, you know, he's always stepping in and saving the day and saving the woman. But, uh, you know, you get a little glimpse into history, but all along, he's got this, you know, this guidebook, this journal that he's using to figure out all these little clues to find the ancient relics. And, uh, you know, it kind of gives us a little hint into our own lives. So, hey, on that note, let's check out another one, right? Just for fun, since it's watch list. I'm through! 
forbid. Jehovah begins with an I. J. So Indy uses his guidebook, the journal, the notes, uh, in the last crusade. He's trying to find the Holy Grail, and there's this clue, only the penitent will pass, and he realizes I got to kneel down, and then he, and then he's figuring out that, oh, I got to step on the stones that spell the, the holy name of God. And so then he says Jehovah, but then he realizes in Latin, it starts with an I. And you're like, what is going on here? And the point is, there's all these little clues. And, and honestly, at each movie, there's a key question. Is the journal reliable? Is it trustworthy? And there's a lot of skepticism, even arguments about, no, that's just garbage. But then people put their entire life into figuring out those clues and getting those clues. Um, it costs people their lives. And it has to make you think just a little bit about the Bible itself, right? These are references to the Bible. And um, what is our guidebook? What journal are we using as a guide to our lives? And then that, that requires us to ask questions. Is it reliable? Is it trustworthy? I mean, is it worth anchoring your life in and putting your life on the line for? And so I want to dive in to the Bible. What you're going to find is that most Christians spend time reading the Bible, studying the Bible, applying the Bible to their life. And every time I preach, every time I preach, I preach from the Bible and I teach from the Bible. And so I wanna do that today. I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in. I'm gonna read a little bit of the Bible to you, but this time I'm gonna do it a little different. Normally I would open up my Bible and I would read to you and you would see it on the screen. Today, I wanna use my computer so when I study and I write sermons, I use what's called Logos Bible Software. And so I'm gonna mirror my computer so you can see it. And as I'm jumping in, I'm jumping into the Gospel of Luke chapter four, where uh, this is the, the life and teachings of Jesus. And in this moment, Jesus has been baptized. And then he, he went out to the desert where he is being tempted by Satan. And so we're jumping into that moment and that story in the life of Jesus. And, and here I go. So I'm just going to go to, it's Luke chapter four, starting in verse three, where it reads, the devil said to him, you are the son of God. Tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written. It's like Jesus opens up a little book and he reads a little clue. It's written. Well, what's written there? Man shall not live on bread alone. Now, there's some little weird things that you're going to see here, right? If you look up, you're going to discover this is like this little notation uh, in verse three. And so I'm going to click on the, the Z and you're going to see it says Matthew chapter four, verse three. There it is. What this is, is it's almost the same verse in a different gospel. It's also written in Matthew chapter four, verse three. That's right. The same story is being told also in the gospel of Matthew. And then if you fast forward, like you could even click on some of these words, like I'm gonna click on the word bread and I discover that it is a Greek word and it's the word artos. And, and that's it, it just means a loaf of bread. Why, when I click on it, do I have a Greek word, artos? 
And then if I keep reading, I get down to verse four. And at the end of verse four, there's these little notations. I click on a notation and it pops up Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. What? What's going on here? So I, I click that. And over here, you're gonna see Deuteronomy chapter eight, verse three. Now, mine popped up in the New King James Version, but I'm gonna go down and I'm gonna read it in the New International Version, where when I read it, it reads this way. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone. Oh, there it is. Man shall not live on bread alone. Jesus was quoting that verse, that passage. And then you continue reading, it says, but every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Wait, what? Now, if we go back to the passage I just read, Luke chapter four, verse four, and I change translations. Now I'm gonna go from the NIV, the New International Version, over to, let's say, the New King James Version. Suddenly what I see is that when Jesus quotes it, it says, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. What? what what's happening here? Why, why does this matter? Well, there are some really important clues Here's why I wanted to pull it up on my Logos Bible software. Because when you read your Bible, there's more going on here than you realize. There's a whole bunch of little notations and, and little uh, footnotes and little, little clues, almost like you're reading a guidebook. And you're kind of like, like wait, I got to figure this thing out. That's right. I want to challenge you, encourage you as we're diving in to do this. Don't just read the Bible, study and know the Bible. That's right. Don't just read it. Study and know the Bible. And so when we're reading the Bible, we're just kind of reading it on the surface level, but I don't want you just to read over it because you would miss all these important little clues that, that will lead you down a path, a search as you study it to discover not just relics from the past, but important little ancient clues that matter today. A little like an Indiana Jones movie, something that was ancient that becomes incredibly relevant in the moment. But this isn't just some fictional made-up movie. This is real life. And as we're, as we're studying to know the Bible, what we're asking is, is this reliable? Is this trustworthy? Is this worth me anchoring my life on. So as I'm jumping in, let me give you a, little, a few little thoughts about studying to know the Bible. I want to give you a challenge right off the bat because some of you, frankly, you might not take the Bible that seriously. Maybe you've had a lot of, maybe you have professors in college. Maybe there's other people that cause you to question the reliability and trustworthiness of the Bible. And so I want to give you kind of a step-by-step -step process. Uh, today, I'm going, to, I'm going to kind of pick up from Dr. and Professor Indiana Jones, and I, I, want to, I want to wax a little bit professor today. And so this is going to be a little bit different of a message than you're typically used to with me. During watch list, why not? And so the first thing I want to do is challenge you as you read in order to study and know the Bible, that at the least, even if you don't take the Bible terribly seriously, would you at least do this? Respect the Bible as the most respected book in all of history. That's right. Would you at least Respect the Bible as the most respected book in all of history. It's the, it's the most translated, the most published, the most written, or the most read book. It's the most translated book in all of history. At the very least, treat it with the same respect you would other classic writings. 
Think about writings like Virgil's Aeneid, right? Or uh, Aesop's Fables, right? Like there's other incredible writings. What about Shakespeare's Hamlet or George Orwell's 1984 or H.G. Wells' The Time Machine or The Odyssey or The Iliad by Homer, right? Like here's the thing about the classics. The reason they're classics is because they've been well-respected for hundreds, even thousands of years. And so if you read, you know, the Odyssey and you're like, yeah, this isn't, this isn't really very good writing or I don't really like this. When you read a classic and you think it's not good writing or you didn't enjoy it, it says more about you than the classic work. And so take the similar approach to the Bible. It's the most respected book in all of history. And so at the very least, read it with an open heart to say, why have people for thousands of years had such regard and respect for this book? And at least respect it as much you would a classic work. But here's the deal. There's, the, the Bible is vastly more interesting and more unique than any of those writings. Any of them. Why? Because it was written with a unique purpose And it has a unique story that is incredibly relevant to all of us. And so let's talk a little bit about the Bible. Well, why is the Bible unique? Here we go. Right off the bat, what does even the word Bible mean? Well, the word Bible is from the Greek word biblia, which translates books or library. And you go, wait, what? I thought the name itself was sacred. No, no, no. It just means books, like library. Well, what's going on there? That's right. It was called that because the Bible is not a book. It's a library. It's made up of 66 different books. And these books are of all different kinds of genre. Some are letters, some are poetry, some are history books, some are ancient Near East poetic or um, um, historical writings, but done in a very different manner, like the Pentateuch. It has law, it has history, but it's done in, in an ancient Near East Uh, style that's hard for the modern reader to fully understand. Some of them, uh, some of it is prophetic writings. Some of it is apocalyptic writings. And even as you're hearing it, you're like, wait, Patrick, what are you saying? 66 different books that make up two volumes. You have the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Bible. The Old Testament would be pre the times of Jesus, New Testament is the times of Jesus and then the early church. Why, why is it called, why are they called testaments? You might think of the last will and testament, but that's not what this means. The word testament from the ancient words would be more like covenant. Now, some of you, when you, when you buy a home, you have to sign or agree to certain covenants, which are like a testament, but that's not even what it means. It means more of a covenant relationship. The Old Testament is a covenant relationship with God based on law. The New Testament is a new covenant relationship through Jesus Christ. And that's literally why there's two different volumes. Now, interestingly, um, the first volume is significantly larger. It's actually 39 books. Now, let's go back to the whole Bible. It's written by over 40 different authors over a span of 1,500 years on three continents. It makes up one story, but written in three different languages. That's right. The Old Testament is predominantly written in Hebrew. There's a little bit of it, uh, about nine chapters that are written in Aramaic. There's actually a few verses in the New Testament that are also Aramaic. Now, that might not mean much to you, but Aramaic is a 
derivation or a derivative of Hebrew. It's a Semitic language. It's a little bit more of a modern Semitic language, at least at that time. In fact, here's a little quick thing, a little clue. Jesus would have spoken Aramaic. Now, he probably could have read some other languages, but he would have spoken Aramaic. And, and then you have Greek. Greek would have been the, the language of the Roman Empire of that time. They also spoke Latin. Now, Greek is interesting. It's the, it's, the, it's the language that the New Testament of the Bible is almost entirely written in, again, except a few verses. Um, Greek is really cool because it's super precise. Like one word in Greek would take a sentence in English to explain. Like the word... They have three words for love, uh, phileo, eros, and agape. Phileo is a family-like, brotherly love. Uh, eros is erotic, romantic, sexual love. Agape is this unconditional, selfless, serving kind of love. See how much I had to explain just to give three words? And we use the word love, but then we have to unpack what that means. So let's jump back in to the Bible. What's going on here? Well, I want to challenge you with something right off the bat. Um, there's this idea that some of the Bible was not originally written down. Remember, the Bible was being formed at the time when written language was just beginning. The, people were just beginning to learn how to write because right, it gives an account from the very beginning. So the Bible is being written as one of the very first writings to ever be written in human history. And so how was it passed down? Well, it was passed down orally, what is called the orality of scripture. What I mean by, again, hopefully you're having fun. This is a little bit like a professor here. So there's an orality. Now, when I heard that and I've read about that, I went, I, I don't feel like that's reliable because I play the, we've played the phone tag game, right? Like I, I say something, it gets passed on. And by the time you get to like 10 people, it, they, they're not saying at all what I said. And we think that that's what oral tradition sounds like. And I've always been confused by that. So as I studied it, I realized, no, when the Bible would have been passed down orally, you're talking about an oral cultures, which means everything they knew about history and teaching and family traditions were passed down orally. What that meant was everybody was required to memorize entire teachings and history. And then there was accountability in the community that every time somebody repeated it or paraphrased it, they were entirely accurate. And so interestingly, in ancient time or, or as written languages was being formed, they didn't trust writing because they felt that one person was claiming that they had the authority of how something was being written down and it lacked the communal accountability. So even as the Bible was being written, there were questions about, yeah, but how do we know this is exact and precise? So interestingly, the Bible began to be written down and there was tremendous accountability around the way it was written and what was written. So now, how do we approach the Bible? I wanna encourage you with this. You and I often approach the Bible in a linear fashion. If you've ever read the Bible, if you've ever opened the Bible, you might do it like most books where you start, you open it up and you start at the beginning, which is Genesis chapter one, and you begin to read and you can just read linear until you get to Revelation chapter 22 at the end of the Bible. But that's not really the way the Christians in the early church would have, now Christians in the early church, they didn't have the Bible. 
But if you were to go to the fourth century, when people began to have access to some form of the Bible as it is today, they wouldn't have approached the Bible that way. In fact, during the early centuries of the church, here's how they approached written sacred scripture. They started with the historical person of Jesus. Jesus, as the son of God, revealed And he has a life and his teachings, his death and his resurrection. Well, how do we know about the historical person of Jesus? Well, it just so happens that there are four gospels that give an account of the life and teachings of Jesus. Three of those gospels are from eyewitness accounts, Matthew, Mark, and John, meaning they were friends of Jesus. So there was accountability in what they wrote and how they wrote. And they wrote these down with that accountability. Others, they wrote during a time when others who knew Jesus could have corrected their account. It was an eyewitness account that was verifiable or what's called falsifiable. I mean, you could say, no, that's not correct. They shared it with the churches of the time and everyone agreed that these were not only accurate and true, but that they were inspired. Then you have the gospel of Luke, which is written by an outsider to Judaism and Christianity by a guy who is a physician who, is, who meets people who, who are part of the church. He becomes intrigued by Jesus, believes in Jesus, then investigates the life of Jesus. Now, how does he investigate it? Well, he travels to places where Jesus was. He meets people who knew Jesus. He begins to interview them. He reads the other gospel accounts. And as a result, he puts together a historically accurate investigative account inspired by God called the Gospel of Luke. He also did the same thing in writing the book of of the Acts of the Apostles. So now you have these accounts, these four gospel accounts. What is the rest of the New Testament? The rest of the New Testament is either books or letters written by the closest friends of Jesus, by the first apostles, and maybe by a few others Jude or other books that were, these were the immediate sphere of influence around Jesus or like the apostle Paul, somebody who early on came to faith in Jesus, was inspired by the Holy Spirit to write these letters, these books of the New Testament. And then why do we have the Old Testament of the Bible? Well, because Jesus and the authors of the New Testament took the Old Testament seriously. And the reason why the Old Testament matters to us is because the Old Testament is the story of God and how God interacts with man, and it helps us better understand the New Testament. There's not contradictions there. Now, the Old Testament has three sections to it. It has the law, the prophets, and the uh, hagiographa, or the writings, all right? Now, if you, as you read over the Bible, you're gonna notice all these little references, especially if you're using some type of a Bible software. And all those little references show us cross-references. It's where one verse is connected to another verse, and they all interconnect. In fact, um, there are 63,779 cross-references for 31,102 verses in the Bible, meaning there are more cross-references than there are verses in the entire Bible. There's this really cool, uh, some um, incredible researchers uh, put this together in a graph, and so I'm gonna have you put that up on the screen, and here's what you're gonna see. Uh, At the bottom of the screen, you have all those little black or what you see is white lines, Those are the length of the verse, okay? And in the middle, you're gonna notice a really long line. That's right, because that's 
uh, Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. So it's basically how long it is. Then you have all of these lines, and all those lines indicate how often that chapter was referenced by other chapters. And so it's connecting all these chapters. So that that shows you 63,000 plus cross-references. Now, why does that matter? Like, in essence, who cares? Well, here's why that matters. Because there is no other historical book that is so heavily researched, so heavily (laughs) cross-referenced. There is not another historical book, religious book that is so interconnected, so cross-referenced, or so well researched by other authors. Let me read you a verse of scripture that would help you understand. Because as I was talking about this, I kept saying they were inspired by God. So let's read 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. It reads this way. All scripture, remember now, so what is going on here? Paul wrote a letter to Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. This is the second letter he wrote. And in that letter, chapter three, verse 16, he writes, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching and rebuking, correcting and training in righteousness. So what he's challenging us to do is to trust God's written word. Trust all of it. Okay, remember, this was written in Greek. So when you read it, you go, all scripture is God-breathed. That word is theo, where we get the word theology, where we get uh, other words that come from the word God, right? Theo, God, neustos, breathed, or exhaled, or breathed out. So in essence, what Paul is saying is God breathed out, um, and he breathed out scriptures, and as a result, these scriptures are useful in our lives to teach us, to rebuke us, to correct us, and to train us in right living. What does this mean? This, when, when it says that God breathed it, did God just go, and suddenly we have the Bible? No, not at all. Actually, what God did was he did not dictate it through the authors. He did not narrate it to the authors, nor did the authors just write down what they were thinking, and God then just breathed uh, his, his blessing on it. So what is going on? Something more like this. God precisely spoke what he wanted spoken two over 40 different authors who each of them have a different personality. They have different education. Some of them are peasant farmers. Some of them were royally training. They were trained in the palace. They, had, they would have known several languages and could, could read and write. You have different authors. Again, some are royal, some are peasants, some are farmers, some are poets, some are warrior soldiers all from different places and backgrounds. You have Luke the physician. Here's what the apostle Peter, when he's writing to the church, he writes, this is his second letter to the church. He writes this in chapter one, verse 20 and 21. He says, above all, you must understand that no prophecy of scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation of things. I mean, they're not just making it up. For prophecy never had its origin in the human will. But prophets Though human, spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And his point is this, that God breathed through human authors, using their personalities, their language, their vocabulary, their writing styles, their experiences, even their memory of things. He works through their perspective and even how they paraphrase other verses. Because sometimes they're just paraphrasing the way they remembered it being read. And so the point is, the Bible is both human and divine. Now, let me give you a, little, a few more clues that I hope are helpful. Because the point is that it's one story. 
you read from Genesis to Revelation, which I would recommend you reading a little different than that, but the point is, if you did, here's what you would find. One story. And it's the story of God and man. And how God made, every, God made everything and everyone to be in relationship with him, but man messed it up. And from that point on, the whole story of the Bible, right? That's how the story should end, but it doesn't. The story begins that way. And it's a story of how God set out on a mission to rescue mankind and restore us to relationship with him. In fact, you could say that all 66 of the books that make up the Bible are God's word and they have been preserved, protected, organized, and canonized. Let me explain. Preserved and protected. What that means is as, things were, as the different books were written down, they were preserved and protected. They were copied over and over and over again to make sure that no, like if you couldn't just destroy one, one copy, you couldn't get rid of it. In fact, we don't have access to any of the originals. What we have access to is manuscripts of copies. They were so meticulous about being scribes, were so meticulous about the way they copied it that they used papyrus. This was the first uh, form of way they could write things down, right? They used uh, papyrus, and, but that didn't last real long. And so then they started using, using what was called codex, which was animal skins bound into a book-like format. And that lasted significantly longer. Amazingly, because uh, these scribes were so meticulous, they were so meticulous that every single page, they would count the number of letters, words, sentences, and they'd have to write them in the column, and they would have to match it with what they were copying from. When they wrote the name of God, Yahweh, they would, they would have to wash themselves completely, clean off their pen before they wrote the name. If they made three errors, on, if, if there was three pages with an error on it in an entire codex, they had to throw the whole thing out. So they would re-examine them after 30 days to see if they had made any mistakes. Why does this matter? Because you have to know that even though now today we have access to over 25,000 different manuscripts, these were all meticulously protected and preserved. And then they were organized. That's right. So up on, this, up on, on your screen, you're going to see that the Old Testament, again, it was not originally written this way. It was originally written almost like a long run-on sentence. And they took out the vowel. There was no vowels. So in the Old Testament, you have no vowels and one giant run-on sentence. So eventually they went and said, well, people have a hard time understanding this. So uh, as you can see up there, the Old Testament verses were added by this guy, Nathan, in AD 1448. So in 1448, they added all of that. The New Testament was added by Robert Estein, uh, who was known as Stephanus, in 1555. So they went through and they added what we have today as the modern chapters and verses. So it was organized, and then it was canonized. What that means is it was called the rule of God, the rule of the word of God. It, that means it's the authoritative rule for life, for practice, and for living. And, and so how, when, was, when did that happen? Well, if you go back, the Old Testament was canonized pretty early on. Remember, you're talking about over spans of, you know, a thousand years. But the last book was written, Malachi, it was written around 400 B.C., and not too much later, all 39 books of the Old Testament were considered canon somewhere between 250 and 100 BC. The New Testament, the last book is the book of Revelation. It was written before 100 AD. And the 27 books of the New Testament were officially canonized by the councils of Hippo, 393 and Carthage, 397. And the point is that 
they were recognized and canonized. Uh, but they, what they did was they recognized what the church already considered to be sacred scripture. That matters because that's kind of, that's important to how we view the Bible. Now, let me give you a couple quick thoughts about this. Because as I already shared, the Bible uh, is transcribed with manuscripts. We don't have any of the originals, but we have portions of them, like, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls that were found between 1946 and 56. Oh, you guys feel like you're in a professor's class here? Um, and, but those, those scrolls had been copied and written somewhere between the 3rd century BC and the 1st century AD. So they're super ancient, which also makes them very accurate. The point is God's word endures. The goal of transcribing is to get it as close to what the original authors wrote as possible. So what you have then eventually is um, the Bible begins to get translated into other languages so other people could understand it. So the first language it was translated into was Latin. So we have what's called the Latin Vulgate. All right. Then it was then the whole Bible was translated into Greek. Then it began to get translated. Even by the second through fourth century, it got it started getting translated into other languages, early languages like the Coptic language and the um, Syriac language. In fact, as missionaries began to spread out across the world to share the message of Jesus, what they would find is they would go into a, a, a country, a, a people group that. They had a spoken language, they didn't have a written language. Or their written language wasn't sophisticated enough to communicate the complexities of the Bible. So many missionaries actually created a written language for the people's spoken language and then translated the Bible into that written language. Languages like uh, Permic or uh, or like Gothic languages, the Georgian language. There's even unique languages in China that the missionaries translated the Bible in. They created the written language and then translated into it. Okay, I wanna keep moving here because I really wanna wrap this up, but I wanna give you some important points. Um, here's the deal. Then eventually the English language starts getting translated. All right, it starts getting translated to the English language somewhere between the seventh and ninth century. We have different, clip, different portions of the Bible. But in the 1300s, this guy, John Wycliffe, at the risk of his own life, he translates the whole Bible into English. Now, he only had access to a few Greek uh, and ancient manuscripts. He had the Latin Vulgate. That's what he used. And then you have, and then in 1525, William Tyndale finished his translation of the Bible into English. Now it cost him his life. That's right. He was burned at the stake by the Catholic church. Before he was burned at the stake, the Catholic church was trying to stop him from doing his work. And he was confronted by a leader in the Catholic church who said, basically, it should never be translated into English because the English is a vulgar language, good enough for plowmen, but not good enough for the, the Bible. And this was Tyndale's response. The scriptures are God. The scriptures of God are being hidden from people's eyes. In fact, if God spares my life, I intend to make it possible for a common farmer, a plowman, to know more of the scripture than you do. Fast forward. Now I want to try to make this practical for you. Here's what you need to understand. Then you go to the English and you have um, the King James Version. In 1611, uh, the, there was a committee of people. Uh, I won't get into the whole history of it. Basically, they had access to about six to ten uh, ancient manuscripts. And they used those along with the Latin Vulgate, to put together, and the, and the Greek Septuagint, to put together what we generally refer to as a King James. It's gone through about 20 different uh, adaptions, but they had a limited access to, the man, to manuscripts. If you fast forward since 1611, 
we have found, it's been discovered tens of thousands of manuscripts. So now why do we have so many translations of the Bible? Uh, in fact, there's a screenshot that I wanna show you of all these different translations. There are about a hundred different translations of the Bible in English. Why that matters is this, because here's what's going on. Uh, people who are translating the Bible are trying to get the English translation as close to the original as possible. So when they find new manuscripts that are older, more ancient, they're saying this is more accurate to what was originally written. And the translation's not inspired. It's just a translation of what was inspired. So we're trying to get it really close. And so you have translations that are word for word. This is, exact, this is what this word means exactly, is how it translates. You have phrase for phrase, and then you have idea for idea, and that's why you have a spectrum of different translations. And so commonly, a lot of people like to use the NIV, the NLT. If you want a more academic one, you might use the NASB. And the key is this, that it's not just meant to be read. It's not just meant to be um, studied, but the Bible studies us. That's, that's why there are so many translations. In fact, the Bible's been translated into so many verses. I mean, in not so many verses, into so many languages. Right now, we have online, digitally, there are 2,877 different versions of the Bible in over 1,918 languages. The Bible's been translated at least one book of the Bible into 3,589 different languages and the full Bible into 724. Right now, there's work being done to translate the Bible into 2,846 different languages in 157 different countries. The point is this, a lot of effort and time has gone into you having access to the Bible, so apply it to your life. Apply God's written word to your life, which means you've gotta study it. You gotta read it, hear it, study it, memorize it, and then live it. Our knowledge of the Bible too often goes far beyond our obedience. See, it's not just about information, which is what I've been giving you, it's about transformation. As I read the word of God, does it change my life? See, you don't just read or study the Bible. The Bible reads and studies you. And it requires you to step out in faith. Check this out.
we must approach the Bible, the word of God by faith. So obviously love that clip. It's kind of an epic, you know, one of the famous clips. And I love the idea of him throwing back the rocks, the sand, so he can see it when he comes back. And sometimes that's what we're doing. That's kind of what I'm doing today. I'm, I'm throwing a little bit of sand across the walkway so you can see more clearly what requires faith. And so I wanna invite you to change your approach to the Bible. Approach the Bible as a table, not a book. Approach the Bible as a table where you sit down to eat and see every verse almost like a meal on a, on a menu. You're sitting at the table. Every verse is a meal on a menu. And every verse, meal, has a common ingredient, Jesus. That we eat that we enjoy, that we ingest, that we consume. And as we consume it, it becomes part of us. You are what you eat. Let, let me quickly, just briefly, wrap this up by kind of walking you through a key important part of the Bible as a table versus as a meal. Go back to the very beginning. What was the first command God gave Adam and Eve? It says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 16 and 17. The Lord God commanded the man, you are to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat it from it, you will certainly die. So what were they going to gain if they ate from the tree of knowledge of evil? Go to an evil, they already had knowledge of good, they were going to gain evil. God would say, I want to protect you from this. Satan comes, Satan tempts them, they eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They sin, they're separated in relationship from God. Thus begins the story. It doesn't end there, it begins. It's a story of God wanting to rescue mankind from their own sins. Fast forward to the very end of the story. Revelation chapter 22, it says this, and let the one who hears say, come. Let the one who is thirsty, come. And let the one who wishes to take from the free gift of the water of life. It begins with eating a meal. It wraps up with drinking from the water of life. When, when the author John writes about Jesus coming, you know what he says? He goes like this, John chapter one, verse 14 he goes, the word, Logos, Jesus, the, the embodiment of the word, living word of God became, uh, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of the living word of God that, that is a table, that is, that is a meal. So then you jump to Jesus. Uh, before he is crucified on the cross, he gathers his closest friends and followers, and he invites them to a meal where they recline at the table. And, and it's recorded by an eyewitness, Matthew, in chapter 26, verse 26 to 28, where he says, Jesus is speaking and says, take eat. He has bread. He broke it. He says, take, eat. This is my body. At the end of the meal, it says he took the cup. When he had given thanks, he gave it to them and saying, drink from it. All of you, this is my blood of the covenant. See it there? Covenant, testament, which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And the point is that we come to Jesus as the living meal for life. Jesus is the living meal. When you go to the word of God, I don't want you just to read the Bible. I want you to let the Bible read you. And when you read it, I want you to discover that Jesus is the point. Every verse should point to Jesus. Don't make an idol out of the Bible. That's actually called Bibleolatry, an idolatry of the Bible. The Bible should point you to Jesus and Jesus is the meal that we enjoy. We're filled with him. Look, can I just challenge you? 
If you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, every clue throughout all of history points to Jesus. Every clue, every hint, every cross reference, every verse, every translation of every language of the Bible points to Jesus. If you're missing Jesus, you're missing the point. He's not just some ancient relic. He's incredibly relevant in our lives today. And I want to invite you to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Would you say yes to Jesus? And if you're saying yes, would you let us know? Scan the QR code that's on the screen. One of our pastors wants to follow up with you and encourage you as you begin this new journey in relationship with God. Now, I want to land it this way. Jesus said, take, eat. This is my body broken for you. Drink. This is the blood of the covenant. We're going to go into a celebration of a meal passed down for 2,000 years that began with the historical Jesus, the Son of God, who said, it is my body broken, my blood spilled. This is the living word of God, that when you take it, now I know you're just, you're gonna eat, you're gonna eat a wafer and you're gonna drink some juice, but when you take it, 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 there's a mystery where God's word becomes alive in you. You're changed by partaking in the meal of Jesus. Would you take this moment, take it seriously. As we go into this song, would you reflect on what God wants to speak to your heart? Thank you for listening to audio from Lifehouse Church. We believe that through Christ, life change happens here. So we invite you to connect with us further by visiting lifehousechurch.org.